I've been thinking a lot about who's got the right to defend themselves in this country, especially over the last couple of weeks. That's when I heard about what happened in rural Hebron, New York, where Kaylin Gillis got killed after turning down the wrong driveway. Investigators say Monaghan fired two shots from his front porch and one bullet killed Gillis. A few days before that, Ralph Yarl, a 16-year-old in Kansas City, Missouri, was injured after he showed up at the wrong doorstep to pick up his little brothers. Police say Andrew Lester fired two shots at 16-year-old Ralph Yarl twice through his glass door. Lester claims he thought the teen was attempting to rob his home. The teen was Some would argue the shooters in these cases, they were doing a warped version of defending themselves. Though, of course, they were never really at risk. Stand your ground laws are once again in the spotlight. It comes after two innocent... In many states, including Missouri, stand your ground laws make that argument easier. Stand your ground allows for deadly force, even if it could be avoided by retreating. In Kansas City, the mayors argued that stand your ground should not apply in the case of Ralph Yarl. I said this earlier, but I'll repeat it again. If this is the sort of thing where stand your ground can be enforced, then every U.S. postal worker, every Amazon delivery person, every pizza delivery person, every Girl Scout volunteer, anybody knocking on your door now becomes somebody who's subject to be shot. I called up law professor Tamara Lave to ask, is the mayor right here? It's nice what the mayor there thinks, but the mayor is not the judge nor the jury in the case. More than 30 states have put stand-your-ground laws in place over the last 20 years. Tamara says what's happened over the last few weeks, it's what stand-your-ground really looks like. You're now licensed to kill in a way you weren't before. I think that that is different. Classic self-defense law was written in a way that protected life. We valued life. You were not allowed to use deadly force unless it was necessary. And we live in a world now in which, by law, you can use deadly force and it's not necessary. Today on the show, how so many in this country got the right to defend themselves so quickly. Is there any going back? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. 
Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Can you tell me how the law traditionally understood an individual's right to self-defense? Yes. So the traditional self-defense law said that you were only allowed to use deadly force if you subjectively and reasonably believed the use of that deadly force was necessary to protect you or a third party against imminent death or great bodily injury. You actually had a duty to retreat, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. You're right. So you also had a duty to retreat if you could do it in the utmost safety. So what that meant was if you were able to retreat safely, you had to do it. You were not allowed to use deadly force. Now, there was something early on called the castle doctrine, which was the idea that if you were in your house, you did not have the duty to retreat. But even then, if someone came into your house, like a Girl Scout was selling cookies and you know, came to your door, you could not, under the castle doctrine, just kill them because they were at your house. You had to, had to be reasonable to believe that they were posing this kind of threat. It's just that you didn't have a duty to retreat in the house. When did all that start to change? So the first stand your ground law was in Florida. And it was something that was put forward by the NRA And the NRA wrote it, and then they got two Florida lawmakers to co-author the bill and get it enacted into law. Your research here is so interesting because, like, you really chronicle the way the NRA for decades basically had their eyes on passing a law like this and worked specifically in Florida to make the environment such that they could do it. And there wasn't any specific incident that prompted this law, right? It's not like there was some horrific incident where someone was unable to defend themselves or felt themselves unable. And, you know, we need to come in and pass this law to protect people. Yes. So that's interesting. Often when major legislation is passed, the major legislation is a reaction to some high profile crime. So if you think about three strikes and you're out in California, that was a reaction to the murder of Polly Klaus. And so often that's what happens. There's a high profile crime. But in Florida, the legislation was not responding to a high profile incident. What happened was once they tried to put this forward, critics said, well, why do we need this? And then they had to search for something. Hmm. And what they found was a female worker who had entered into somebody's trailer And they then pointed to that. But it wasn't something that was out there. People were outraged by. And that was what the legislation was reacting to. What outraged Republican lawmakers about the shooting of a FEMA worker is that the man who shot him lived under a cloud of suspicion for weeks afterward. The thing is, he never got charged with anything. And the prosecutor who considered the case said stand your ground wasn't necessary. The law moved forward anyway. Supporters claimed the new legislation would help people protect themselves in ways they couldn't have before, not legally at least. But Tamara says those people tend to underestimate just how robust the right to self-defense already was. So one of the things, one of the myths that pro-NRA people, pro-stand-your-ground people will say is, you know, I, I don't want if you have 
a really, you know, a small woman or someone who is in a wheelchair, how are they going to defend themselves? The duty to retreat is going to be dangerous for them. But that's misstating what classic self-defense law said. It didn't say you always have a duty to retreat. It said you have a duty to retreat if you can do it safely. And so if you have someone in a wheelchair and they're attacked, they're going to be able to use deadly force under traditional law. Because they have no safe way to retreat. Correct. You did not need stand your ground to protect people that were vulnerable. They would have had under traditional law the right to defend themselves. What do we know about the impact of these laws, like how they've actually impacted police work, how they've impacted the homicide rate? Like, do we have a clear sense of that? Yes. So there have been studies that have shown that in Florida and in other stand your ground states, that after the passage of stand your ground laws, that the homicide rate has gone up, which is, of course, no surprise. What about how the police do what they do? So one of the things that happened in that Stand Your Ground Law did in Florida was it said that if the police have probable cause to believe that the person acted under Stand Your Ground, then they are prohibited from arresting them. Prohibited from arresting them? Arresting them, yes. That's so early in the case. Yes. And remember that the police get a lot of evidence from arresting people. They fingerprint them. They are able to do analysis of ballistics. I mean, they're allowed to look at gunshot residue on their hands. They're allowed to interrogate them. If They have to Mirandaize them if it's custodial interrogation. But we know that 80% of people waive their right to silence after being Mirandaized. So in other words, the law actually impedes the ability for police to adequately investigate what happened. Because you have a limited window after a crime occurs, right? Like you want to talk to people as soon as possible to make sure their stories don't change, to see like the physical evidence, like do they have a black eye? Like are they, you know, are is there gun residue on their hands? Those sorts of things, things that will go away after a shower potentially, or a few days. Yes. So remember, when they, they can go up and start talking to the person. So in the police report, they can note if the person had a black eye or the person had something like something else like that. But if they say, can we, we want to look at your hands and the person says no, how are they going to look at their hands? They're not arresting them. If the person's not consenting to it, they have no ability to, to grab their hands. So, you know, it does interfere with their ability to interact with the suspect and gather evidence that would be important for convicting the person at trial. And if they arrest the person and it was later found that they had probable cause to believe the person acted under Stand Your Ground, there can be consequences for them for doing that. Stand Your Ground laws also make it harder to prosecute people, even when it seems likely that they reacted disproportionately. So what happens under Stand Your Ground is once somebody puts forward the defense of Stand Your Ground, it becomes an affirmative defense and the prosecution then has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you did not act out of self-defense. So this is an important change because in the past, self-defense was an affirmative defense and the defendant had the, the burden of showing that he had reasonably believed the use of deadly force was necessary. Now, the state has the burden of proving he didn't believe that. Yeah. It seems to me, too, that Stand Your Ground has always been deeply bound up in issues of race in this country. 
Like the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights voted 5-3 to investigate whether stand your ground laws are racially biased. I mean, of course they're racially. All of our laws are racially biased because we have laws that are created sometimes explicitly racist. They used to be. But even if they're not, they're still implemented by human beings with all of their flaws, all of our flaws. I consider myself one of those flawed human beings. We're all flawed. We all come in with our preconceptions. And so if you have a law that allows someone to use deadly force, even when they can retreat safely, and you put that law in the hands of people that are, you know, scared of a black person, see a black person as bigger than they actually are, or more dangerous than they are, or more threatening, then they're going to use deadly force. We'll be right back. With so much evidence that stand-your-ground laws are influencing the way crimes are prosecuted, I asked Tamara Lave to go through a few of the most recent cases in the news, the ones that have opened up this conversation about the shoot-first culture in the U.S. We began with that case out of rural New York, in which a woman was killed for simply turning down the wrong driveway. Because while on its face, this incident looks very similar to what happened to Ralph Yarl, state law is pretty different here. New York is one of a minority of states without any stand-your-ground laws. New York does not have a stand-your-ground law. It does have the Castle Doctrine, which remember when we were discussing classic self-defense law, the Castle Doctrine removes the duty to retreat when you're inside the home. But she was on the driveway, and so he cannot appeal to the Castle Doctrine. And so I think he has no chance of succeeding on a self-defense claim especially because the evidence shows that she was driving away as he shot at the car. So she was literally retreating. Correct. But there was no there was no evidence. I mean, when they talk about the home, they're not they don't say the property. They talk about actual the structure of the home. And there's no claim by the shooter Kevin Monahan that in fact she tried to enter the home. So I think that as a matter of law, I don't see how a judge could give it to the jurors. So what happened in New York is kind of a good example of how things may have operated before stand-your-ground laws were even a thing. Absolutely. Okay. So then we have the case of Ralph Yarl in Kansas City. And this is the teenager who went to the wrong house and knocked on the door and then found himself shot. Now, Missouri does have a stand-your-ground law, right? Yes. So how would that situation be different? So Missouri Stand Your Ground Law says that if you are in a place you have the right to be, you don't have any duty to retreat. And it says that there are certain areas like the home where you are allowed to use deadly force to defend against unlawful force, not against deadly force or forcible felony, but unlawful force. And so attempting to enter a house is enough to constitute unlawful force. And so What that means under Missouri law is if it was reasonable for the shooter, Andrew Lester, to believe that Ralph Yarl had attempted to enter his house unlawfully, then under the law, Andrew Lester would have been able to use deadly force against Ralph Yarl. Which is why there's so much debate about whether Ralph Yarl was jiggling the knob or whatever. Correct. But in this instance, you have 
the fact that Andrew Lester shot him, you know, through the glass door, shot him more than once. So I think that it's going to be a harder case for Andrew Lester to argue that he shot Ralph Yarl in self-defense, but he can make that argument. He can say, this is what I believe. Remember, you can make a mistake. And so will jurors think that Ralph Yarl was attempting to enter Andrew Lester's house? I don't know what the answer to that question is going to be. I worry because I worry about the lens that the that the jurors are going to look at Ralph Yarl through. Because he's a Black teenager. Yes. But this is a different, you can see the difference between Missouri and New York here, because, and the difference between Missouri stand your ground law and the law beforehand, because beforehand, although you would have the, the Castle Doctrine would have allowed Andrew Lester to use deadly force, the person would have had to enter and they would have not it wouldn't, wouldn't have been to protect against unlawful force. It would have been against deadly force or forcible felony. So lowering, saying you can kill somebody if they're just using unlawful force allows you to kill somebody for doing something that's you know illegal, but not something that's posing a risk to your life or somebody else's life. But in this instance, I think these facts make that claim very difficult. There's one more case I wanted Tamara to weigh in on, a case out of Texas. That's where back in 2020, Daniel Perry drove his car into a crowd of Black Lives Matter protesters. And then he shot one of them. After Perry got convicted of murder recently, Governor Greg Abbott said he was working as swiftly as Texas law allows to pardon him, specifically because of Stand Your Ground. Tamara says even though Perry was not in his home— the law still does apply to him. Okay, so remember that Stand Your Ground, one of the things that it did was it expanded the Castle Doctrine. The Castle Doctrine said that you didn't have a duty to retreat. You were allowed to use deadly force if you were in your home and you were facing deadly force, the threat of a forcible felony. So what Stand Your Ground law did was it said that, first of all, it lowered the kind of force you were facing in your home. But it also expanded that to outside of the home. If you're in your car, you don't have a duty to retreat, even if you can do it safely. If you're any place you have the right to be, you don't have a duty to retreat, even if you can do it safely. So the governor is correct that the fact that Daniel Perry was in his car. That's the shooter. Correct. That the fact that Daniel Perry was in his car doesn't prevent him from invoking Sand your ground. But here's the problem. The first problem is that what Perry did was he drove his car into a group of protesters and he honked. And so when you're talking about stand your ground, if you basically are the instigator, it makes it harder to claim stand your ground. That's the first claim, the first action that's going to make it difficult. The second thing is that the person who he shot, Garrett Foster, had a gun, but he had the right to have a gun. And what Perry argued was that Garrett Foster aimed his gun at Perry. And so understand your ground law, if Garrett Foster had in fact aimed his gun at Daniel Perry, even though Daniel Perry was in his car, he would not have a duty to retreat. He would be allowed to use deadly force. But the problem is that there's a factual dispute as to whether or not Garrett Foster actually aimed his gun at Daniel Perry. And witnesses said he did not. And the jurors believe that. And so if all that's happening is Garrett Foster has a gun, Daniel Perry does not have the right to shoot him. So 
I sincerely hope that Daniel Perry is not pardoned based on the evidence as we know it. You know, it's interesting listening to these three cases, one after the other. You know, it's been almost 20 years since Stand Your Ground passed in Florida. And 20 years later, I look at the impact of Stand Your Ground, and I think maybe one of its main impacts is cultural. Like, we all know about Stand Your Ground laws, and then we're seeing these incidents where we're having to consider, oh, is this what Stand Your Ground means? And it's almost like, at this point, like one of these cases we're talking about is in New York, which doesn't have a Stand Your Ground law, but Stand Your Ground culture <laughs> is, is you can't stop that from spreading. Yes. And you know what? What's interesting is, you know, in this article that I wrote about Stand Your Ground, I have this whole exchange with this guy named Joe Horn who shoots and kills someone who broke into his neighbor's house. This was in Texas. Correct. Part of what's so interesting about that is the, the 911 operator tells him to stay inside his house. And Joe Horn actually talks about how the law has changed. He actually references to the difference in the recent passage of Stand Your Ground law in Texas. So he knows about it and is using it, refer, explicitly referring to it when he shoots and kills this person, that he has the right to do that. He's told repeatedly to stay inside. And he says, I have a right to protect myself. And so part of what's interesting is you're right. There's a way in which Stand Your Ground has permeated our culture. Some people like Joe Horn knew about it, relied on it in killing this person that had broken into his neighbor's house, but other people may not know the law of their state, but may think they have the right to use deadly force because of stand your ground. Now, they're still going to get prosecuted for it, but you know, if somebody kills your loved one, you may feel better that the person who killed your loved one is held accountable, but given the choice, you'd prefer your loved one was alive. I think you and I agree that the impact of these stand your ground laws it doesn't seem positive. And it feels like we've had that evidence for a little while. I'm wondering if you think about what it would take to reverse the impact of these laws. I mean, you know, I was just reading, there was an article, these people that were talking about responding to the shooting in Connecticut of all those first graders. The Newtown shooting. And they were talking about whether or not people should see the actual crime scene footage because it's so sanitized and the images they saw were so horrific. And right now, of course, we don't see those images. But after that happened, all those innocent children, first graders that were working on Christmas bulbs for their family, you know, that were working with construction paper and it did nothing. It didn't change anything in this country with guns. I mean, now people are more emboldened to have guns. I sadly don't feel very hopeful that these shootings, the innocent, you know, Ralph Yarl in the Youth Symphony, playing all these instruments, a great student going to pick up his siblings and he gets shot through a glass door. Is that going to change policy? I don't think so. Uh, no, I don't feel, I don't feel hopeful that there's going to, I hope, but I don't feel hopeful. Tamara, I'm so grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for having me. Tamara Lave is a professor of criminal law 
at the University of Miami. She's also a former public defender. And that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus and sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, Rob Gunther, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Laura Spencer. We're led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter, say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.